There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to you, which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Here's an incredible connection between Abraham and Isaac. God made the covenant with Abraham. It's the Abrahamic covenant that from his descendants, through the son of promise Isaac, who now God is speaking to, Isaac, would come a nation. In fact, we know as we studied it that God kept expanding the promise. A nation, nations, kings, and of course the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the offspring. So from Abraham and Isaac, here in the promised land of modern Israel, they're promised all the land for their descendants, which of course is the nation of Israel, the Israelites. It's promised to them. It's their land. God promised it to them. It's an everlasting covenant that way. And we see that in play even to this day. But it is through the nation of Israel that the seed, capital S, the offspring, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come. So in Matthew chapter 1, we read in the first verse that Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And that's important because as Matthew is writing his gospel to the Jews, that they knew that the Messiah had to be a descendant of Abraham and of David, which is another Bible study. But of Abraham, it fits into our context. So as this promise line goes, yes, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel will come through Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. He's now alive in this passage. And that's all going to happen. But ultimately, through the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, is going to come, the Savior of the world. So that saying, in your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Yes, they will through the gospel. Because Jesus said in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations and teach them all things I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you throughout all ages. I'm always with you. So this passage that in you to Isaac, all nations will be blessed, while it speaks of the nation of Israel and speaks of the 12 tribes to come and the multitudes of millions who will inhabit this land of Israel as descendants of Abraham, ethnically Jewish or Israelites, it ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And of all the things we're thankful for this night on Thanksgiving week, there's nothing we can be more thankful for than who we're thankful for, Jesus Christ the King of the Jews, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Messiah, Savior of the world. Truly tonight we gather, having just watched that video of looking at the body of Christ, the Calvary Chapel movement, we have fellowship with our brothers and sisters there in Moscow, Nizhny Godoro, and Calvary Chapel people. Then there's Baptist people. You saw the Baptists all gathered together there in Salicard. It's just beautiful. We're part of this. This passage ultimately is fulfilled through the church, because Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he's birthed us. It's, it's an incredible passage, because in all nations are blessed, not because of Israel, but because Jesus Christ came through the Jews as the king of the Jews 
to all nations. And of course, the book of Acts, which I was reading when I was going through Russia, is a reminder that the early church, those Jewish believers, took that message out to all nations, all dialects. And there in Moscow, I heard many different dialects. Of course, I heard Russian, but there in the nice areas of Moscow, I heard uh, Arabic. I heard some languages I did not recognize at all. Uh, nothing I've ever heard, because it's the exact opposite part of the planet. People look tremendously different than our side of the planet, or even Western Europe. It's a whole other part of the human race. And there in Salicard, I heard the native languages that the people have. Hanging out with David Markey, he speaks English and Russian and some of the different dialects, partial dialects of the people. It's amazing. But all nations are blessed through the promise made to Father Abraham and affirmed here to Isaac in these verses. Because the end of the objective of the promise is not the nation of Israel. It's that the Jews, through the Jews, the seed, Galatians 3 tells us Jesus Christ would come to all nations. The Jews were entrusted with the scriptures and they're entrusted with the promises. But the promises are all in Jesus Christ, which are yes, yes, and amen. But before we move on from this, I have to point out something that gets my attention. As God affirmed the promises to Isaac, even so, tonight, my daughter Hannah's here, and my wife and I have been married for 31 years, and we've known those promises in our personal lives and in our marriage. We've gone out and planted churches in Virginia, Vermont, here in Fountain Valley in Orange County. We've served with Brian Broderson in the 80s at Calvary Chapel Vista. We've served with Pastor Chuck in the early 2000s at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We've been there with Bob Botsford at Horizon North County. We've been with Rob Savato at Calvary Chapel Vista. And we've seen the Lord's faithfulness in our life. We've seen the promises of God. We've seen the word of God come alive for us in our lives. And we've lived those promises in our journey. And we are certainly more than halfway through our journey of life. And now my daughter at 29 serving the Lord with her husband, Nate, where they go to Ghana and Central America and inner city Philadelphia and the ministries they've had. She's had to learn those promises for herself. She needs to have her stories of God's faithfulness in her life. Nate Gallagher, her husband, his dad is amazing. He's one of the most amazing people I know in the human experience. And he pastors Calvary Chapel, Bureau Beach, an incredible man of God. But Nate can't live off his father's experiences and vicariously through the promises of God through Jim Gallagher's life, but Nate needs to live the promises in Nate Gallagher's life. This is very important. You can receive a legacy from the generation before you of faith, but it's up to each generation to grab that faith in their own life, have it affirmed by the Holy Spirit, God himself to them, those promises, and to live it out in theirs. It's like when I listen to Pastor Chuck teach from the 70s. And he's teaching Song of Solomon or Proverbs and Psalms and Isaiah. And you're hearing him teach it and apply it to the 70s. And I'm like, that was his time. And now I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. And this is our time, 2019, on the cusp of 2020, 40 years later. We have to know those promises for ourselves in each generation. And we need to equip the next generation, our children, our children's children, and our children's children's children, if possible, if God would so allow, to know those promises of the covenant, the new and everlasting covenant in Jesus Christ. That they would know Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That they would know his faithfulness. See, 
there when I was with Sasha and Julia, Corey's sister-in-law and brother-in-law, and dancing with Peter. Peter does breakdancing classes. So he, he wanted to, he, if I woke up at 6 in the morning before I went to school, he called me out. I was like, hey, I want to call you out right now in my hallway. I'm like, okay, little Russian, let's do this right now. And it was a wonderful thing to do. You know, it was awesome. And you build those bridges. And all I could see when I spent that day with Peter and all the things that we did together, I saw the future of the church in Russia right up to 2080. That's what I saw. We need to see that. And his parents have great faith. And they serve the Lord faithfully in Moscow. And they have a good life. They have a really nice apartment. And they go to a really nice school. As nice as any school you'll ever see in Irvine. It's a beautiful school. And you know what? they got to go through security too when they go to school. At public school. They have their generation. And they have to find their faith. So what I do on a trip like that, or Danny going to Scotland, is we want to build people up to find their faith for our peers of our generation, but to reach the next generation. Because they're going to have this planet when we're gone. And they're going to be the church on this planet. And like Hannah and Nate, they can receive the baton, but they're going to need to run their race. And they're going to need to know those promises, just like Isaac needed to know. See, there comes a day when you're the son of promise, and you're not living in dad's shadows anymore, father Abraham's. I mean, can you imagine your dad as Abraham? You talk about your dad's shadow. Uh, It's too hard being in my dad's shadow. Can you imagine being in father Abraham's shadow? You're the son of promise. It's so crazy you're born, they call you laughter. Because it's like a joke. It's such a miracle. It's like, dude, every time I see you, I want to laugh. Right? It's like it's so nothing to do with you. It's God and his promises. And yet there comes a point in his adult life where God says, I'm talking to you now, Isaac. I'm not talking to your dad. I'm talking to you. And I'm telling you, these promises are for you. That's very important to hold that. But the last thing before we move on, and this is a key part of the entire message tonight, is Abraham's legacy for Isaac. Did you catch it? Because your father obeyed me. Because he kept my commandments. Because your dad made the right choices. Now you get the blessings. And he's not even around anymore. His body is in the cave of Machpelah. But where the saved and redeemed go in the Old Testament is called Abraham's bosom. Jesus called it that. But Abraham's not walking the planet. Isaac has buried his mother in sorrow. He's buried his father in sorrow with his half-brother Ishmael at the cave of Machpelah. And he had to get on with life. He's cried out to the Lord for his wife to have children. He's got children, and they're very different, Esau and Jacob. And here God says, I'm talking to you. These are for you. And this is the legacy of what your father gave you. So parents, regardless of what your adult children do, wisely or unwisely, Keep doing the right thing. Be an Abraham. Be a Sarah. Sow that good spiritual seed of prayer and love and empathy and compassion and mercy and love and joy in their life. Regardless of what you see or don't see in the fruit of the Spirit in their life at this time. Because Abraham's gone 
And God says to Isaac, hey, I'm blessing you because your dad was a good man. And the legacy of him being a good man is alive this day. And so these promises are yours because your dad obeyed me. Guys, older people, it tells us finish strong. Finish strong right to the end with a high kick for the king. Because we keep passing the blessings on and we, we pass them on by faith. And then we're gone, and maybe the Lord might speak to our adult children in their 40s or 50s when we're long gone and say, hey, I'm blessing you because of your parents, and I want you to know me the way your father and your mother knew me. So here's what we're going to do in your life. We're going to give you triumph. We're going to give you tragedy or anything in between, but you're going to know that I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no other. I like it. It's about Isaac, though. It's Isaac's time. We read on verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she's my sister. (laughs) Yeah. For he was afraid to say she's my wife, because he thought, lest these men of the place kill me for Rebecca, because she's beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window, saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife. And then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she's your wife, so how could you say she's your sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all of his people, saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Well, what's interesting to me about this part of the story is, of course, Isaac says the same thing Abraham said when he would lie about uh, Sarah. She's my sister, but she was his half-sister. But he said... But look what it says in the very first verse 6. And the men of the place asked about his wife. I think his fear was justified. The men are asking about his wife. These these are not godly men. These are not God-fearing men. I think Isaac's concern is valid. You know, it's kind of crazy, but you get the feeling in this society, they're not going to commit adultery, but they'll commit murder. They'll kill you to get your wife, but they're not going to commit adultery with your wife. Societies and people and humanity does weird things. Let God be true and every man a liar. And in the end, Isaac is covered by the Lord, just like Abraham was in a similar situation in Egypt. It is worth noting, though, of course, we saw in the previous verses, that there was a famine in the land, a different one than Abraham's. We all get a famine. We're all tested by famines. Feast and famine, life will certainly bring famine. It might bring feast, but it will surely bring famine, just the way it works. And it's Isaac's famine to work through his faith but God told him don't you dare go down to Egypt so God said hey don't you do what your dad did stay in the land so he stays in the land and the men show up and start asking about his wife hey what's up with this girl here you know he's like whoa she's my sister please don't kill me but God had his back we pick it up in verse 12 then Isaac sowed in the land in that land and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him And the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And they filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us. You are much mightier than we. These are very interesting verses. Now, Think about the phrase, in the land, because in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. Then God said in verse 2 to to Isaac, live in the land, dwell in this land. 
So there's a famine in the land, live in the land, dwell in the land. And then we read in verse 12, so Isaac sowed in the land. You see the progression? Sowing is like you're investing, like you're investing. So if you say, hey, I'm sowing in the community, like if you move to a new region, you get involved, like maybe in the, the local government or the school or the community through sports or you're going to be a little league umpire or something like, you know, you're sowing, you're, you're connecting with people. You, this is your home. You're going to live here. You get a job. You're paying taxes. You're part of the community. You're planted. You're taking root. So in the midst of a famine, contextually, where God has said, stay in the land, dwell in the land, he's sowing in the land and he's prospering in the land. At the same time, the neighbors show up and go, hey man, scram. The same neighbors who filled the wells that his dad had discovered and benefited from. And the craziest thing is, this whole piece of property, all Israel, the size of Southern California, it's been promised to him. It's his land by God's promise. These guys, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the people of the land, they tried to stop the blessings from flowing in Isaac's life in the next generation. The devil's like that. He'll try and stop the blessings of the Calvary Chapel movement in the second generation. He'll try and stop the blessings of the body of Christ. And by the way, church history shows the devil tries very hard to stop the wells of blessing in the second generation of any church movement. You study church history, you'll see that. So I've been thinking not to be too mystical in this text, but we got to keep the wells flowing. We need the Holy Spirit flowing. We need to keep crying out for the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's not about Calvary Chapel. It's about the church of Jesus Christ universally on planet Earth in the year of our Lord, 2019, moving toward 2020. But if we want revival, we got to unplug those wells that the devil would clog, that evil men and evil women would clog. we got to unplug those things. And it's not by petitioning or protesting. It's by prayer and, and supplication and crying out. Nothing wrong with petitioning and protesting if that's your gig. But please pray before you get upset and protest. Because protesting is nothing new under the sun, and it's limited to men against men. But prayer is the power of God moving the promises of God for the purposes of God in a generation. There's always someone to clog the wells. You feel like someone's trying to like clog the wells all over the world right now for the church of Jesus Christ. Put fear in the church. Stop sowing. Stop prospering. No. Now is the time to sow the word of God in our lives. To sow the promises of God in our generation, the next generation, and future generations. Now is the time more so than ever to be bolder than you can imagine. When I was there in Russia, I spoke to a few pastors. And you could tell there was a trepidness over their... Their, their fears of like, hey, you know, we can be arrested for sharing our faith and seeing anyone converted in this region. So if someone gives their life to Christ through our ministry and a family member doesn't like it, they can report it to authorities and they can come down on us and make our life difficult. Now, to be honest, that's pretty scary, isn't it? You think it's scary trying to share your faith. How would you like to share your faith and be in trouble for the fruit of your faith being fulfilled, being shared? I guess it's all a matter of perspective. But, you know, when you think about sharing your faith, being bold, praying, and sowing, it's about unplugging wells. It's about, like, digging deep. Find, find it. The torrents of living water. It's about getting after what God has. 
It's about making things happen. You look at Isaac, he sowed in the land. And if you don't sow, you don't reap. So if you don't sow your time, your energy, and your resources for the kingdom, you're not going to reap from your time, your energy, and your resources from the kingdom. As Paul the Apostle said, he who sows sparingly, what do they do? They reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully, what do they reap? They reap bountifully. So sow your life. Sow the totality of who you are. God's not interested in your 10%. The government wants your 10%. Naturally, they want more than that. God's interested in 100%. Your whole being, everything is the Lord's. We're not paying taxes with the Lord. Christ died for us. Our life is no longer our own. You look at Isaac, and physically he sowed. He began to act upon those promises. And it says prospered in three different contexts. It says he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. You don't sow, you don't reap. In a famine, he sowed. God bless people who believe in Jesus Christ and sow the gospel and sow the spirit and sow prayer in the famine because they believe God in spite of the famine. That the blessings are around the corner. And it says the Lord blessed him. And then look, verse 13, the man began to prosper and he continued to prosper until he became very prosperous. That's progressive. Did you see that? (laughs) Isn't that the kind of progress we all want with the Lord? I'm not talking about possessions that kids can fight over when you're dead. I'm talking about the kingdom. I'm talking about the kingdom. We're talking about the Lord. Sowing the love, the joy, the hope, the promises, the peace, life, and that more abundantly. That's what we're talking about. The kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Would to God, when you look back on 2019, you can look in the mirror and say, God, I have sown in the land, and in the same year I've reaped a hundredfold. God, you have begun to bless me, you have continued to bless me, and I have become very blessed. You began to prosper me, you continue to prosper me, and I have prospered very much. If you can say this of your life in the Holy Spirit in service to the Lord, you are a blessed woman, and you are a blessed man, and your life is a great life and a life to be lived. And if you can't say this, you have to think, well, what's in place of my life that I cannot say this? And is it worth supplanting what I could say if I could say this and what this means? This is what I want to say. Wouldn't you want to be in your last breath and you turn to someone near to you and say, oh, I've sown and I've reaped and I'm going to keep reaping when I'm gone. Do you think Pastor Chuck's done reaping? You think when Greg Laurie steps into eternity, he's done reaping? All those souls that came forward for 30 years, plus all the other crusades? All that fruit? It's an investment that keeps going on. He'll be in that dimension, but his fruit will keep reaping in this dimension. Don't you want to be in that dimension in glory and have your fruit reaping in this dimension when you're gone? I certainly do. See all those rich people who attack the people of faith, James chapter 2 tells us. Chapter 1 and 2, 1 implies, 2 tells us clearly. They get so rich and they monopolize everything, they know what to do with all their money, so they create all these funds and grants and trusts that keep going, keep going for education, all these things, which I suppose are not necessarily bad in themselves, but if they don't elevate for the king and the kingdom, then they're in vain. So guys like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, they got all these funds and all these trusts and all these grants, and they give more education to people that's godless than they left behind 100 years ago. No, we sow the kingdom 
and we leave for the kingdom, and what we've sown keeps reaping for the kingdom when we're gone. What do you want to sow? You want to be like Vanderbilt and leave behind a university in your name and all that money that people still fight over and petition for to go to pseudo-education that's godless in most cases and perpetuate that from generation to generation? Or do you want to be sowing the kingdom and have that perpetuate from generation to generation when you're gone? We want to sow and we want to reap a hundredfold and we want to sow to the kingdom and we want to be said of our life that we began to be prosperous, we've continued to be prosperous, and we're very prosperous. That's the kingdom. And that's what Isaac was. And you know, some people are very jealous of that. People get really jealous of fruitful people. When you're fruitful for the Lord, people get jealous. Supernatural. People get jealous. If you're prospering uh, materially or prospering spiritually, People, they, they, they can attack that. Look what they said. Go away. You are much mightier than we. People are threatened by spiritual power in some cases. They are. These guys are like, so when they tell you to go away, so you're right where God wants you to be and you've got conflict. There's a famine in the land. He says, stay in the land, dwell in the land, and now you're sown in the land. And then the neighbors come and say, well, we don't want you here. Well, contextually, Isaac stepped back from the conflict, but he didn't leave the land. You follow me? Like, as much as up to you, the peace be with all men, Romans says. So he just kind of like stepped back. All right, I'm leaving the finance department and I'm moving to the, uh, you know, claims department, right? Like, you're still in the land, but you just, he's like, hey, it's all good. And so we pick it up. Verse 17. Then Isaac departed from there and he pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar. And he dwelt there, and Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the well Essek, because they quarreled, well of quarreling, they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one. So they called it Sitnan, which is the, the well of strife. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, which is the well of spaciousness, because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Life is like this, right? This is a whole Bible study right here. I might teach it topically Saturday. I might not, because there's so much good stuff in this chapter, as you can see. But the well of spaciousness, you know, this is like how life works. You apply for this college, this college, and that college, and you think it's this one or that one, and you don't get it, and then it's this one, and that ends up being the well of spaciousness. You pursue this relationship, and it's contention and strife, that relationship, contention and strife, and then lo and behold, here's the perfect person for you, and it's, this, it's the relationship of spaciousness. You try and find your niche at this church, it's not quite the right fit. That church not quite the right fit, and then you land at this church, and it's like, or that church, and it's the church of spaciousness. It's how life works. The job of contention, the job of strife, and then you land at this job, it's the job of spaciousness. It's like Luke with Corey. It's like the job of spaciousness. He found it. Such a good worker in all the places he worked. But just weird contentions, you know? But he gave 100% like Joseph in Egypt, and now he's at the job of spaciousness. We cannot let quarreling and strife discourage us when we're digging for water with the king. And it can be disheartening when you have you hit water and you're excited and something good's happening and then all of a sudden there's strife and contention 
it gets discouraging. But this story would illustrate to us, keep digging. Just keep digging. All right, well, that didn't work out. Okay, well, okay. Sooner or later, as you're seeking the Lord and you're putting God first, he'll bring you to the well of spaciousness, that place where you thrive and you flourish, where you find your place in the land. You find your place with the Lord. You find your place with the promises. You find that place where the water's flowing freely, the sowing is reaping bountifully, and God is king and Jesus reigns. That's what you find. The well of spaciousness. Don't let contention and strife in the human experience keep you from pressing toward the well of spaciousness because God has a place for us to be fruitful. But so often we underestimate the value of what he's teaching us through the well of contention and the well of strife where there's fruit, but eh, and there's water, and there's, eh, but then it'll bring you that well of spaciousness. Think of Pastor Chuck for 17 years as a four-square pastor, doing what he did in all those places, and he had so much strife and contention, and he let go and trusted God, and he lands at this church in Huntington Beach, and he teaches his two years of sermons, then he decides, I don't want to leave Huntington Beach. It's a nice place to live, right? He's like, I'm not going to go back to Phoenix or Prescott. I like where I'm at. So he decides from Haley's Bible handbook to teach verse John, verse by verse. He found the well of spaciousness. And to this day, us being here, we're reflected in the carryover of the well of spaciousness of that first Calvary Chapel with Pastor Chuck in Huntington Beach so many decades ago. Find your well of spaciousness and don't be discouraged by strife. We pick it up now in verse 23. Then he, Isaac, went from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply you. And multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahusath and one of his friends, and Philcal, the commander of his army. So he shows up at the general, right? And Isaac says to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and you've sent me away from you? But they said, uh, we have certainly seen the Lord is with you. So we said, let there be now be an oath between us and between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we've not touched you and since we've done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, and you are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and they drank, and they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. And therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So he's found the well of spaciousness. And he's come to this place in verse 23 that's known as Beersheba. Beersheba still exists. It's the eighth largest city in Israel. It's about 200,000 people. It's there in the Gev Desert. Beersheba, it's still there. Isn't it awesome? Like 4,000 years later, all those 200,000 people going to work in Israel tomorrow in Beersheba, it began with this well. The well of oath or well of seven oaths, as it's called. So in verse 23, the Lord appeared to him And 
You say, don't fear, I'm with you. And we talked about this before. When you say, do not fear, usually there might be fear. And maybe he was afraid, like, gosh, they're going to come and take this and cause problems here too. But he said, I got your back. I'm going to bless you and multiply your descendants for Abraham's sake. And we see here where Isaac built an altar like his father. He called on the name of the Lord like his father. He pitched his tent. He was a tent dweller. Hebrews 11 tells us he's a tent dweller, a sojourner like his father. He's accredited for that in the New Testament. And they dug that well. They dug that well. They dug that well. Another well. You keep digging. You just keep digging. Just keep digging. Keep going for more. Do you want just some of the blessings? Or do you want all the blessings? Do you want a little bit of fruit? Or all the fruit? Right? You press in. And you go after more. Just keep digging wells. Right? You're alive. Dig another well. Let's strike water for the Lord. Let's keep sowing. Let's keep reaping. Let's keep, let's keep going. we got all the promises. Yes, yes, and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's keep digging wells. And they dug that well. And there, at the same time, these guys come and said, look, God's with you. We don't want any trouble. Let's make this covenant. Let's do this. Let's live in peace and make this happen. And he agreed to it. And to this day, if you visit Beersheba, you go to a place that reminds us of God's faithfulness to Isaac and God and Isaac's faithfulness to the Lord. For there he built an altar to the Lord. He called out to the Lord. He continued to live in a tent before the Lord. And he was affirmed by the promises of the Lord. Life was good. Life was good for Isaac at Beersheba. It was good. But things happened. So we have this last couple of verses to close out the night. And... I know, don't, you know, some chapters you go like, man, I wish it stopped right there. But it's not always sunshine, butterflies, and pugs running through a field with curly tails. Sometimes it's, life gets messy. So it gets a little messy on the back end here, but we won't dwell on it too long. When Esau, verse 34, that's their son, one of the two sons, was 40 years old, he took his wives Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Well, life happens. What you can control, you can control. You sow, you reap, you dig for wells, you make peace with your neighbors who formerly told you to beat it, right? Those are things you can control. You do the best you can. If your 40-year-old adult son wants to marry two women who are Canaanites, that's what he's going to do. And if you're grieved, you're grieved. And they were grieved. Isaac tended to favor Esau. Rebekah tended to favor Jacob. But they were in unity that they both did not approve. And as, if it's not enough to marry one Canaanite woman, you've got to marry two, right? This from the man that we saw last week who sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. So the guy that sells his birthright for a bowl of beans... He had no heart for spiritual things. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. And so now he takes two women of the local region, knowing that his grandfather Abraham did not allow his dad to have a wife from these women. That his own mother was brought in from Padamaram, that, that God guided his grandfather's servant, Eliezer, to bring his mom, Rebekah, to his dad, Isaac. Knowing that story and having that legacy of faith that he could build his life on and learn from 
and selecting a spouse, he still did it his own way. See, it's hard to watch people that don't appreciate the blessings and don't want God's best. What are you going to do? You're going to keep praying for them. You're going to keep loving them. And you keep hoping the best. Because love hopes all things. Love bears all things. And love never fails. And as long as we're alive, the story is not done. And even if it seems done, there's always more that God did than what you know. And there's always more that he's doing than you know. And there's always more that will be happening when you're gone and you won't even be a part of knowing. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endure all things, and it never fails. I can only imagine the heart of Isaac and Rebekah praying for Esau and how grievous it would be when he'd show up with his two Canaanite wives. But what are you going to do? Trying to have a good Thanksgiving dinner? Pass the white meat, please. Cranberries. Some yams with the marshmallows, please. You just, you do the best you can and sow love and grace and mercy and let God do his job. Amen.